Dan Francesco here, Anthony Malakian there. You can't see him, but you can hear him. We're back. Episode 4, Water's Wavelength Podcast. A couple quick notes before we jump into things. We are on iTunes now. That's right. We're part of the Apple Motherload. Find us, Water's Technology, in the iTunes store, in the podcast section. Subscribe to us. Be updated all the time. Download us to whatever device your little heart desire uses, desires and uses. And you can listen to us all the time. So definitely look us up. Subscribe us. Give us a good rating too. Five stars, four stars, whatever the highest is. You know we deserve it because we do. So going from that point, we're going to switch things up a little bit today. A lot of news. Not one or two really big stories that we really felt we need to sink our teeth into for an extended period. So we're going to do what... Tony has dubbed the PTI format, and if you're not familiar, PTI, pardon the interruption, a fantastic show on ESPN. Um, One of my favorites, I believe, Tony, it's one of your favorites too, right? Absolutely. So what we're looking to do here is we have eight topics, range of buy-side, sell-side subjects, and we're just going to run through them two minutes apiece. One of us is going to lead them. The other one is going to give their feedback if necessary. We're going to keep it tight. We got ourselves on a clock, and uh, hopefully we'll give you guys a bunch of information for this, and then, as always, send you on your merry way. So to start, we're going to do the reconstruction of the flash crash, which Anthony wrote about in his Friday column. So Anthony, why don't you uh, hit us with some knowledge right now? Sure. Um, So almost six years ago, uh, May 6, 2010, uh, the flash crash happened. Uh, We still don't fully know uh, what went down. Uh, There are some theories. uh, Some blame uh, mutual fund uh, Waddle and Reed. Some blame high frequency trade in general. Some blame fat finger mistakes. Some blame uh, London-based equity futures trader uh, Navinder Singh Sero. Uh, perhaps it was a combination of all of those and maybe more. So on January 25th, uh, 2016, uh, two, three professors, two from Santa Clara or Santa Cruz, uh, one from Stanford, released their research paper on what happened. Again, we will link to the story uh, on the website so you can uh, find it there and, and read it yourself. But basically, what they found is that they're kind of going with the it was a, a combination of events. Uh, so this is from their report. And it says, we find that the flash crash is sufficiently explained as the results of the confluence of the unsettled market conditions that prevailed in the hours leading up to the flash crash, combined with the size and execution strategy of the Waddle and Reed trades. We confirm that offer side order book imbalances create substantially in the hour immediately prior to the crash, but only at price levels deep in the book. Um, and then they're determining uh, whether uh, there were some other anomalies that they found in the off-exchange trades that were reported to FINRA. Uh, so they're also looking at that as well. Uh, basically, their findings were uh, that Navinder, uh, that he couldn't have caused this on his own. It's possible that he had some, uh, through spoofing trades, stuff like that, uh, could have had a hand in this, but they seem to kind of vindicate him. Um So what I would say is that I can't help but think that for machine learning, that that can help in the future. So we still don't know what happens, but I think that machine learning can serve almost like an earthquake warning uh, for spikes in the market where there is a warning for growing imbalances or messaging spikes that could trigger, that could lead to future crashes. Um, I might be putting too much faith into this, but we still don't know what happened, 
So maybe that's something to think about that as advancements happen in AI and machine learning, maybe that's something that can help uh, regulars do their job better. So that's uh, the first topic. A uh, little bit rough. Let's uh, keep on moving along here, though. Uh, hold on, hold on. Everybody, wake up. Wake up. Okay, I think we woke up the audience from, from that lovely one. I know. That was not a great first segment there. We will try to do better on these next seven. All right, Dan, you're going to get to take over next. Uh, Citadel Securities became NICE's largest uh, DMM uh, by acquiring KCG's business. Uh, why don't you tell me what you found there? Yeah, so biggest takeaways from this is that essentially there's three big players in the DMM game. Well, as of the start of 2015, start of 2016, there were three big players. There's Barclays, there's KC, KCG, and there's IMC. GTS goes ahead and buys Barclays business. Then Citadel, a week later, essentially goes ahead and buys KCG's business. Um, my biggest takeaway from this is why did why didn't IMC buy up both of these businesses as they were on the market and just take complete control between those three which so now gts citadel and imc they control 90 percent of the entire business of the entire um dmm business if i was in imc granted now this is a lot of money to be throwing around it's not like it's you know buying a, a candy bar at the, at the local 7-eleven but if it's out there, why not get into it? I understand Barclays getting out of the DMM business. It's a high-frequency, high-technology game. They're a bank. They have a lot of other things they need to worry about. Why not just move away from that? Uh, and and in that in that whole sense, I understand GTS getting involved. Uh, Citadel, the KCG, that's a little bit more... I'm a little bit more unsure about that. Uh, this is, you know, this whole low latency speed thing that's right up KCG's alley. So I, I, that's a little bit, a little bit more perplexing to me. But my biggest takeaway from this, again, is why didn't IMC try to make a move on either of these, especially with them going back to back to try to get a bigger market share? Uh, Anthony, I don't know. Do you have any takes on this or any any opinions on it? I really don't. Uh. <laughs> well, that's fine. No, 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 no. I, I gave you the same thing on yours, so fair enough. Uh, but other than that, I think the DMM business in general is, is pretty interesting because it's unique to New York Stock Exchange. We talk about computers, computers, and this is definitely a computer man's game, but there's also the human touch. So it's interesting how it has both those sides. Uh, moving on to staying in that whole ex exchange world, we have the relaunch of the N the NSX and then the CHX uh, acquisition. So Anthony wants tell us a little bit about both those deals sure um on this one uh at the very end of 2015 national stock exchange relaunched after a group of investors came in to um basically salvage uh the scraps who had no liquidity and was went under a uh, group of investors came in bought it they're, re they're redoing the price structure to do away with the traditional maker taker pricing system and then also at the same time, uh, you had a group of uh, private investors led by a Chinese firm, uh, Kaysen Group, um, that came in to buy um, the Chicago Stock Exchange. Uh, the, I guess the takeaways here are simply that the NSX is they're just trying to they're trying to find order flow uh, by working on the pricing. Um, it's going to come down though to whether or not their executions are good. Uh, otherwise, they're going to find themselves in the same precar uh, predicament that they had found themselves in before. Um, the Chinese uh, group buying uh, CHX, um, 
it's a small chunk of like usually there's a price tag attached to these things and there was no price tag that came out um they only amounted to about 0.5 percent of the market um so chx is much more of a technology firm um and so this will probably allow uh chinese uh, the, the chinese group to allow for uh, some of their stocks um, to go public in the U.S., um, possibly. We'll see what they have in store for it in the future, but uh, they didn't really say anything about uh, any other pricing structure changes or any technology, uh, changes in technology. So I guess that we still have to kind of see what's uh, going to happen there. Um, that's about the best I got there. Let's keep on moving along. Uh, Dan, we're going to come back to you now. Uh, market added uh, JP Morgan's uh, integration software for syndicated loans. What do you got? Yeah, so I will be honest with you. Syndicated loan business, I, I like to think that I'm somewhat well-versed in the financial services industry. This is a little bit of a, a, a mind boggle for me. A lot of this stuff is is pretty confusing, pretty, pretty deep in the weeds. But this is basically essentially what market bought was the system to help uh, firms integrate major systems in uh, major systems uh, using syndicated loan loan market that made absolutely no sense what I just said this is like I said it's confusing and when people talk about it, it's confusing basically they bought a, a market bought a solution from from J P Morgan uh, around system integration uh, I you know they're trying to make the the industry more consolidated I think that's I think that's good in, in this case. They've bought, bought some other purchases, buying the loan SERV uh, position reconciliation service from the DTCC, um, all around kind of consolidation and simplifying this process. Kind of the less human touch they get in this, uh, the better. This is this is confusing stuff uh, for me. I don't know, Tony, if you have any takes on it. <laughs> Once again, I got nothing on this. <laughs> you know what I think I'm finding out, though, is that we are terrible when it comes to like this time pressure. I, I feel like the sword of Damocles is hanging over my head on all these. I think that for next week we're gonna definitely have to rework this uh, this whole. Yeah, it's so much easier when I can just ramble on and talk, you know, wax poetic about all the different, you know, the one story rope. But when I really have to get down to the nitty gritty, I, I don't like it at all. You see, I feel that we could do a much better job of talking about sports in a two minute segment, but talking about technology, it's. We're not in it. We write about it. We report on it. But I do not think that we are nearly uh, experts. We just talk to the experts <laughs> and let them know uh, thoughts and then kind of throw in our two cents at the end. But yeah, I'd say that. But you know what? You can't. You, we're we're already more than halfway in, so we're going to see it through the rough waters. And next up is a risk. Our brother sister publication uh, over at Incisive Media, Risk.net. Put together uh, IB put together a panel that Anthony attended uh, regarding uh, IBM and uh, data. So there was a hilarious quote in there about uh, choking out a, uh, a chief data officer, which I'll tease and I'll let uh, Anthony talk about. Yeah, sure. No, I like that. Risk is our brother sister publication. <laughs> how how else would you describe it? Please, no, no. Sibling publication. Brother sister sibling is a is a, is a brother and sister. It's not a sibling. Well, they're not the same person, though, right? Are we is that a brother sister? Not the same, unless there, there. I guess that there are some cases that I am trying to be. I'm an equal opportunity podcaster, so if I wouldn't want to say our brother publication, and I wouldn't want to say our sister publication, because there's fine male and female journalists on that publication, so that's why I said brother sister. And I thank you and good day, sir. Now talk about your IBM panel. 
This has gone off the rails terribly. So, IBM panel. Uh, yesterday, we had the Smarter Risk Summit. It was sponsored by IBM and our sibling publication, Risk. And a uh, bunch of panels throughout the day and then some keynote speakers. Uh, it was very well attended. Um, it was at the New York Stock Exchange at a beautiful little hall that they had there. Anyway, um, I'm wasting my time on that stuff, huh? Uh, so... They were talking about the first panel that um, I watched. Um, they were talking about the challenges of bringing together finance data uh, along uh, with the risk data. So you have your finance data, that stuff that's going to be going out to your shareholders, and then the risk data, which has its own silos amongst the various business units, uh, various desks. Um, and then you have to kind of reconcile those two pieces of data. Very challenging. Automation is the way to go. It eventually went down to a conversation of who should own the data. This is something that we've covered a lot of. Um, and so basically uh, a, a chief data officer um, from uh, Mizuno, uh, Mizuno uh, Securities, uh, he was on the panel. Um, hold on here. I'm just looking up his name. My God, Tony Lakin, you are not doing a great job. I'll get you his name in a second. But he was saying that, you know, it's very difficult uh, for anybody to this idea of governance processes, uh, it's, it's very difficult for one person to control everything because you're creating internal data and then you have external data sources coming in. It's tough to say just one person. Um, when they were talking uh, to another panelist, um, man, Tony, this is just Thomas Mav Mavotis. Global Head of Data Governance Strategy, Quality, and Tooling at HSBC. Butchered his last name. I apologize. Um, they asked him, so they said that you need uh, one person whose throat it is that you can choke and say, this is your accountability. So he was he was advocating for one person. And so then uh, the moderator asked, uh, should that be the chief data officer? And he said, uh, no, uh, I would never have a chief data officer owning anything. They're part of the governance process. You need a business person who's affected by that data to be the data owner. Um, so I guess that that's going to be a conversation that everybody has at every single organization. How much power does the CDO, what should they see? Or is by the fact that uh, Mavus didn't have anything, Thomas didn't have anything wrong with the chief data officer. They have a chief data officer. His what's thinking was, though, that somebody in the business has to be in charge of it. Um, while um, some might say that it's impossible to have one person oversee everything. Um, man, I, I overbooked it first, so I, I screwed up there. Butchered names uh, throughout that, forgot names. And... Um, Went over the budget. Yeah, I mean, that was if, just if, that was a trade. If I could paint a picture of what this podcast looks like now, I would say it's the guy at the wedding that has the tie all the way off and it's on top of his head and the jacket is nowhere to be found and the vest is off and the mother of the bride is looking at him kind of awkward, but he's doing the worm because he wants to do the worm. That's 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 what we are at, minute 15. That's where we are at right, right now in the podcast. But we will power through and this is actually this is probably of all this of all the stories this is probably the biggest of the week um is around the mifid 2 delay so we already knew this was coming down the pipeline but it was essentially confirmed uh by the european commission it's not coming out until uh the the 
the regulation will be now set in place January 3rd, 2018. Uh, it's a year later than planned. So we kind of knew what was happening. I'll throw a link in the, the story to uh, our vendor's reaction piece that we wrote at the time, which I think this week knew about this back in November. Um, but the, my one favorite piece is from Jonathan Hill. He's Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability, and Capital Markets Run. Side note, Tony, that's how you recall and say someone's name. You have it ready, so you, you know right away. But You are the man. That's just, you know, I'm just a pro. What can you say? Um, but... Uh, you know, one of the things that is said is, uh, given the complexity and of the technical challenges highlighted by ESMA, it makes sense to extend the deadline for MIFID too. So clearly, it's technology problems that are are there. And one of the things that was noted in the piece was that it's not just that the firms that are gonna, that these regulations are going to be put on are having trouble. The actual regulators that are going to be you know, regulating this regulation. That's a lot of regulation right there for you. But the actual, uh, you know, the enforcers of this don't even have the technology to do it, which just cracks me up because you guys set this deadline. It's not like it just, it, it cracks me up that, you know, you set the regulation, you set the deadline, and then you guys couldn't even meet it. But then, you know, that was kind of slipped in on the backside of the, the press release. Supposed to, well, you know, no one else can get their, their things in place. But I remember from the vendor piece that the vendor reaction piece we said, a lot of the vendors said this was expected. And I'm kind of the mindset. I'd rather them delay it and get it right, then push it through and have kind of a hodgepodge of half people are ready, half people aren't ready and kind of have a mess. That being said, if it gets pushed back another year, another year, then it's kind of people taking advantage of the system. Um, so let's transition now to, oh, I'm sorry. Dan, I had, I had a thought on this one. Oh, wow. A hot take from Anthony Malikian. Let's hear it. I think everybody's saying that this is good. It's, you know, we need this delay. We need the extra time. I think that my takeaway on this is that with anything, and you always see it, especially when it comes to capital markets, is this is going to be watered down even more, and there will be another delay. I would, they're going to have a soft, maybe a soft opening in 2018, um, but I think that for sure that this will get watered down some more. There'll be further delays and further pushback. So this is good. I'm glad you brought this up. Uh because I think it's an interesting topic, and we'll go along on this one. I don't really care. Screw the uh, the whole the whole idea. I'm throwing the plan out the window. Um, I want to I want to talk about this because I think this is you bring up a great point. In the capital markets, we see this all the time. It's this game of cat and mouse with the regulators and with the firms. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. Okay, we'll push back. We can't. We can't do it. We can't do it. Okay, we'll push back. At what point? Do you, where is the line? Because you have to understand at least that somewhat. Firms are telling the truth, and they're not going to be able to meet these regulations. So what's the point of putting them through if no one's going to be able to meet them? I mean, the same kind of, it's a similar but different. The CAT is a great example of this, of how the the, the consolidated audit trials, yes. The consolidated audit trials is a great example of this. The SROs, the self-regulatory organizations, are kind of dragging their feet about setting this up, and it's getting pushed back and pushed back. And you hear from leaders in the SEC, we need to get the CAT in place. We need to get the CAT in place. We need to get the CAT in place. And yet over and over again, there's delays delays, delays. Now, on one hand, I agree that you want to make sure if you're going to do a project that big, you want to get it right. But on the other hand, I feel like people are taking advantage of the system. In your perspective, and maybe there isn't an answer, what's the line? What's the what's what's the, the, the correct balance? There's no telling what the line is, but these rules so often are made, you know, they become political, right? So there is, you know, you have the financial crisis um, and then that, lead, that snowballs and other things. Dodd-Frank comes out of it. And then things get better, things improve, and people are like, all right, you know what, we don't care, you know, the 
right now you have politicians here in the U.S. you know, campaign and become president. They don't care as people. They they it's still a nice little uh, bat to hit over you know, Wow, Wall Street's killing us, and it's a winning line. But no one's bringing up Dodd Frank the way that they were um, in 2012, 2008, and those election cycles. Same thing with Mifid too. You know, these things, they get forgotten about by the general public. And when that happens, that gives Wall Street firms uh, more leverage to water these things down. So that's why I think that, you know, 2008 getting pushed back to here. I think more things are going to get pushed back. Um, but and that's just the way it always seems to happen. All right. OK, fair enough. Fair point. Do you want to quickly touch on the blockchain story or do you want to just move past it? No. OK. I went so, in. Sorry. All right. We're all in. So, uh, Anthony, uh, the buy side is uh, getting involved in the blockchain. Your thoughts? Two minutes. I got this. Blockchain. Um, we've been talking a lot about it. Uh, so five, the Financial Times reported this week that there are five uh, major UK fund managers, uh, Schroeder's, Aberdeen Asset Management, uh, Columbia Threadneedle Investments, Aviva Investors and Henderson Global Investors, that they're going to team up to explore the potential benefits of using blockchain technology. Again, this was a Financial Times article. Um, we have spoken uh, to several buy sides throughout the year. We had our Waters USA conference and before that we had the buy side technology uh, North American Summit. Um, it's funny because the sell side is actively, I mean, you have everybody on the sell side is trying to get their name attached to blockchain. Buy side, right now, it's everybody's just wait and see. We're exploring. We're going to see. It looks like they're just going to kind of let the sell side to figure this out and lead the charge. So these five major uh, buy sides come together and say, you know what? We don't want them to, to run the show. We want to kind of figure out what's in it for us. I think that's an interesting development. It'll be. I want to see if uh, some firms over here do that. Uh, I remember, um, what was it from, uh, by, uh, from, I'm sorry, Waters USA. Um, who was it here? Uh, what Mark Leeson, chief data strategist at insurance firm, uh, Validus Holdings. Uh, he said, um, maybe Bitcoin or some crypt other cryptocurrency will ultimately be the right thing. But right now the underlying ledger has far greater potential reach. Everyone is looking at this. Do we try to be the backbone do we uh, join a consortium of peers or simply be a player? Um, buy side has simply chosen to be a, a player on this. Uh, these five firms are saying that, you know, we, we're looking at a consortium. I doubt anybody on the buy side is going to look to be the buy, the backbone of this, maybe the way that DTCC or somebody like that's going to look at it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see here in the U.S. Does, do some hedge funds, fund managers follow suit with those firms? Bam, I think I nailed that right about two minutes. Go me. Yeah. Good job. Good job. I'm not going to anything. I'm I'm so over blockchain. I'm so over blockchain. I've written so much about it already in the end of the year, and it's not going anywhere. It's going to be in the news, so it is what it is. Uh, last note is me, and I will talk about the SST Awards as the SST editor, deputy editor. Uh, we talked about it last time, just so you guys know. Submissions next Friday is the deadline Friday, uh, end of business day. Um, and the actual awards are April 21st, the Marriott Marquis in New York. The event is preceded by the North American Trading and Architecture Summit, which should be a good one. Anthony and I were just looking through the program. Lots of good stuff, lots of good panelists. Uh, in terms of the SST Awards, getting your submissions in. A couple things. Anthony touched on them last podcast. Be sure to listen to it. Right, It's right in the beginning, but I'll just touch on them. 
don't copy and paste like the same submissions. So many times when I see vendors submit submissions that it's the same thing for four different categories, it's the same press jargon. I just look past it. I don't want to see it. Have be specific. Have a problem. Have a solution. Have what the result was. Be concise. Hit our times. Have something different. Put in the time and effort, but don't, you know, if you're just going to mail it in, then we're not going to be interested in looking at it. Um, I can't make it more clear than that. The biggest thing for me is seeing an actual solution. Also, another thing is timeliness. If you did something in 2015 that's important, explain that to me. Don't bring up stuff that happened two years ago or three years ago because I don't really care. I want to know about a most recent problem you've tackled, a solution, and the result. If you can be concise in that order and kind of do it chronologically, I'll be very interested in it. I don't know if that was two minutes. I don't care anymore. That's it. We're done with our eight topics. Um, once again, we've gone long, but we'd be really remiss if we didn't talk about the Super Bowl because both of us have massive amounts of egg on our face for picking the Carolina Panthers. Um, the game was miserable, not because I lost money, but because it was just miserable. It wasn't a fun, exciting game. The team that won almost didn't went the entire game without scoring an offensive touchdown. Anthony, what are your thoughts on it? Uh it was the worst game of football I've ever watched start to finish. Like, there have been some terrible Jets games I've watched where <laughs> I just turned off the game. I switched the game. Quick question. Do you think, did the New York Jets kill the New England Patriots with that overtime win in New York? Did it rip their soul out? Because, hypothetically, they win that game. They get home field advantage. They play They play uh, Peyton at home. I think it was cold that weekend. Peyton can't throw in the cold. Hypothetically, the Patriots win. And then, looking at what the Patriots did to... Looking at what the Broncos did to the Panthers, Patriots have a fifth Super Bowl. So really, when you think about it, the Jets essentially took a Super Bowl out of the Patriots' hands. So I'm sorry, I'll let you continue. No, as as usual, the Jets Super Bowl was playing New England during the regular season, and then when the playoffs start, you know they get to go to Sunny Mountain. An- another quick fun fact for you: since I think it's 2001, Tom Brady won Super Bowl, the Manning brothers four Super Bowls. So just just think about that one. But anyway, continue. You know, I guess that we'll just forget about all those other Super Bowls. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, terrible game, boring game. Peyton Manning was terrible. Anybody talking about how savvy and smart Peyton Manning was? I mean, God, it was the. Uh, I can't believe that a performance like that won a Super Bowl. Um, and for me, also, all these people that are ripping on Cam Newton, I'm a former sports player. I think Dan and I might have different ideas on this one, but... I don't care what immediately after. I've interviewed so many boxers post-fight, and you can't ask them questions afterwards. And who cares about what they really have to say immediately after? Some are very eloquent. Some are good sportsmen and all that. I don't care. I didn't care about the whole Cam Newton thing. He played terrible in the Super Bowl. You know, he wasn't going to be pumped to answer any questions. Um, But, yeah, this whole Super Bowl – the, the biggest thing that we had to talk about after the Super Bowl was Cam Newton's reaction. Nothing else interesting came of that topic. And I like the fact that the MVP, Von Miller, was busted on performance-enhancing drugs uh, two years earlier. He's now our superstar MVP. Uh, Peyton Manning had HGH uh, something sent to his house, to his wife, I believe it was. Um, but he says he did not take it. So um, for all the baseball fans out there that won't allow any uh, person ever tied to performance-enhancing drugs into the Hall of Fame. I wonder if uh, football will be the same way. Uh, I doubt it. 
so th- that's my key takeaways. Well, Tom Brady deflates football, so nobody's perfect. Uh, but I will just quickly touch on, since you brought it up and you said you think we, we do have different opinions on Cam. I don't care about the post-game press conference. I think it's a charade. I think it's a parade. But this is a society. This is what we live in. This is how we have to function. And I wouldn't care if Cam was like that if the whole year he wasn't as outspoken and as in your face. And I don't have a problem with that. I think it's awesome. I think, you know, I heard them say, if you don't want me dancing in the end zone, don't let me get in the end zone. That's 100% true. And I love that. And I love the confidence. That all being said, when you lose, you got to take your medicine and you have to sit there and you have to do your due diligence. I understand it's the biggest game he'll ever play in. He might never make it again. It's more heartbreak than I've ever had in all the combination of losses I've had in my career as an athlete. But that all being said, you made a big point about saying how there's no bandages for emotions, but emotions, but you wish there were because of all the feelings you hurt of other teams and stuff. You ripped the fan signs down. That's all fine. I don't have a problem with that. I love the showboating. I think it's entertaining, and I, and I like Cam. I think he's an amazing athlete. I think he really is the face of the NFL now, but you can't sit there and pout like a three-year-old when you lost. That's my thoughts on it. Agree with me, disagree. Let me know. Who knows? Uh... That's it. We ran long again. I will say this real quick. Obviously, the biggest thing in the regular news is is politics and the uh, and the primaries. Anthony and I are not just jocks that just care about football. Uh, the Super Bowl is the biggest thing in the world, so we had to talk about that because we're such big football fans. We do care about the primaries. We do have a lot of hot takes on both the the both Democrat and the uh, Republican nominees. Next week, I'm going to throw out and I'm going to say a promise that we will get to it because I don't think there's any big, you know, I don't care about the NBA All-Star game. I like the NBA, but I know Anthony definitely doesn't care about the NBA All-Star game. So next week, we'll 100% talk about the primaries. We'll keep it short. and We'll make sure to get some some political talk in there for all you political junkies out there. Other than that, I have nothing else. Uh, be sure to go on iTunes, Waters Technology, search it, subscribe, give us good ratings. Uh, Anthony, you have anything else? Just like Vaughn Miller in the Super Bowl, I was the MVP of today, um, this podcast. I was brilliant, and that's how I'm going to remember this. Okay. Well, um, yeah, just like, uh, I don't know, I was going to make a Tom Brady joke, but he deflated football, so cheater got caught. Cheater got caught. Oh, we're going to we're gonna end the recording right here, so we didn't even get that last bit from Tony. I'm going to cut him out. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.